Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,281 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. We are continuing the message as I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This is the 23rd of a 25-week message series covering the book of Hebrews. This message is titled, Commitment and Contentment. I pray that it'll be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. We do appreciate each one of you being here today. We praise the Lord that we can worship and study His Word as we continue our extended series through the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Last week, our focus was watch out for worldliness, which can cause us to get distracted from our marathon in this life of faith. And we concluded last week's passage with the thought of, we don't need to be like Esau. Let's not settle for a bowl of stew when we have inherited the birthright of God as God's child. And today we begin the last chapter of Hebrews. Been quite a lengthy extended series we got today and a couple more messages. And today we're exploring standing at the crossroads of commitment and contentment. And the passage today is a shorter one. It's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It's on page 1878 of your pew Bibles if you want to follow along. This title is chapter of this title. The title of this chapter is Concluding Exhortations. So follow along as I read. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you were yourself were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and the all sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, I will never leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we start out today. Let's look at our bulletin insert on the side that says commitment and contentment. This is the third part of a neatly outlined historical record for the Hebrews, and it's called Three Theological Virtues, and those virtues are faith, hope, and love. Chapter 11 was a procession of men and women of faith that was worthy of emulating or imitating. Chapter 12 sets forth the warning of essential advice to help believers stand firm in the hope of enduring this marathon of our Christian life. And now chapter 13, the author examines the Christian life of love for God and others. And I wanted to start out with a concise overview of Hebrews 13. These are 10 relationships that we should have with each other and with other aspects of our lives. We'll go over the first six today, two more next week, and two, week, two after the week following. The first relationship is with other believers in chapter 1, with strangers in chapter 2, with prisoners in chapter, er, verse 3, with our spouses in verse 4, with money in verses 5 and 6, with leaders in verse 7, with Christ in verses 8 through 14, with God in verses 15 through 17, in prayer in verses 18 through 21, and with all the saints in verses 22 through 25. So that's what we have coming up today in the next couple of weeks. 
As this grand letter comes to a conclusion, the writer becomes increasingly more personal, encouraging, and practical for our lives. He communicated the central thrust of his thesis throughout the book of Hebrews, and that was Christ is superior in his person and his work. Now, these last couple of chapters, these last three chapters, he's developed the specific topic that Jesus is superior for pressing on in our Christian life. But a few miscellaneous subjects must be dealt with before we conclude this book. As he wraps things up, none of these requires a page after page development of an argument and a deep analysis as we had to study through the book of Hebrews. None of them are about the Old Testament passages, the case of treatments of Christ and his preeminence over the angels, our spiritual rest, or Christ's Melchizedek priesthood. The book of Hebrews you have to dig a little bit deeper because it's set more like the Old Testament books. But now we want to look at the close fellowship of friendship. These passages point to a chapter, chapter 13. They're just succinct points, but they're not just trivia. They're very important for all of our lives. All of them are too significant to let stand unsaid. As we glance casually at the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, it reveals a, a broad spectrum of concerns calling for our personal and a practical response. In this first section that we're going to focus on today, we'll look at a series of practical exhortations that are addressing the here and now. How do we live our life on a daily basis? How can we treat each other within the body of Christ? And these seven verses might seem like a small amount of verses to constitute an entire message. But the rapid-fire pace of the practical appeals requires that we are kept on our toes, that we understand these exhortations. And the proper question we need to ask ourselves as we get started, am I giving sufficient time and attention to each of these matters that we'll cover today? Verses 1 through 3 are those first three verses of Hebrews chapter 13 sets the tone for this, what's referred to as the love chapter. They come at us like the first jabs of a boxer that enters the ring and he hears the bell and he starts making jabs. And these are these practical exhortations are similar to that to us. Alerting us that indeed we need to apply these practical principles to our lives. Each command is crafted for its maximum impact. Each one leaves us defenseless and it demands of us that we respond with a personal response. In verse 1, the overall theme of the chapter is established. It says, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Now, the phrase love each other as brothers and sisters is one word in the Greek. It's Philadelphia. We understand that because of the city. And it's referred to as the city of brotherly love. The word is a compound word of two Greek words, the philios, which is referring to disposition of someone who is kindly disposed to or devoted to another person. We might call this love of a close fellowship or a friendship that we have. Now, the other word is Adelphius, means either brother or sister. Those are, that are part of our family. Together, we get the idea of a close, intimate relationship between family members, such as brothers and sisters, in a close family setting. What a wonderful way to kick off a series of commands by living in a close, loving community of people such as our church here and the church worldwide, that aren't blood relatives, but we are knit together as brothers and sisters in Christ in close fellowship with this common bond. 
For the Christian, the common bond is that union that we have in Jesus Christ, our relationship with him that was established by the Holy Spirit. It makes all of us the children of God who have accepted Christ as brothers and sisters. This kind of love demands that each of us have this love for one another. And we're not just attending these spiritual meetings at the same time, in the same place every week. That's not what constitutes a spiritual family. The appeal to Philadelphia carries us with a strong implication of taking seriously our identity as members of the same, a permanent spiritual family, one with another. However, this Christ-like atmosphere, it just can't stay in the church situation. The author immediately addresses an all-too-common error of closed church communities. They become ingrown. They become exclusive. They become cliquish. Now, I don't see that here at Putnam. But in some churches, they get so ingrown that they don't reach out. To do this, the author intentionally contrasts two words. He start, they start the same, with the same root, but they end differently. We're not only to maintain Philadelphia, but also Philozenia. Chances are you've heard of xenophobia, and that's being afraid of strangers. We talk about in school stranger danger, and that's a proper setting for that. Strangers, a Greek word is xenos, to those who are outside of us. But we as believers are to reach out to those who are strangers, those foreigner people, those that might not dress like us, that might not look like us, those that might not smell like us, that might be a different nationality than us. Those that we're not familiar with and not part of our closed community. And just as we are to love fellow believers, Philadelphia, we're also to show love for those who are strangers to us, Philozenia. Now, the commentator by the last name of Guthrie places this exhortations of showing hospitality toward outsiders in its historical context. In the environment of the early church, it was essential since alternative facilities for travelers were such that Christians would not choose to make use of them. Now, in those days, those hostels, or we would call them bed and breakfasts today, where they existed, they were notorious for their immorality and their violence. But the New Testament concept of hospitality has a much more comprehensive application than this. And even in the Middle East today, hospitality is a means of friendship. If you invite a person into a meal, that means you're extending fellowship with that person. But let's bring it back to today's analogy. Say you're on a road trip, and you're not particularly religious, but your trip requires that you go through some of the large cities in our country, such as Chicago, where there's a lot of violence, or San Francisco, where there's a lot of hecticness going on. But as you're going through the city, it's coming nightfall. And you're weary, you're exhausted, you're hungry, you're needing some sort of rest. But all the overnight options that you see in the city would keep you tossing and turning all night long with one eye open. Would somebody tempt you toward immorality, to drugs, or try to do you harm? But what are you to do? But then suddenly you come across a well-maintained and brightly lit church. So you pull into its parking lot. And with a pleasant smile, a man and his wife invite you in, give you a friendly pat on the back, extend a warm invitation to stay at their home, which is attached to the church. You are now behind those locked doors with a warm meal and warm bed. And during the meal, you witness something that you've never seen before, a family that actually shows love and respect to each other. And they have friends that stop by that share their provisions with you for your journey. 
You greet one another, or they greet one another in the name of somebody called Jesus. They pray for you, and they share their story of hope, that hope of their forgiveness of sins, the resurrection from the dead, the eternal life, and the free gift of grace. What a welcome alternative to those seedy locations in that town that you're currently in. In the morning, you leave feeling refreshed in body, mind, soul, and spirit. But your trip takes you on to the next large city that you must go through. But when you go through that city, might you just seek out what is called the church or Christ followers? And so it was in that first century of Jerusalem where this letter of Hebrews was written to. Believers were to show hospitality to these strangers that would come into their cities and be seeking some sort of refuge, something different than the normal places that they would have to stay. And that's how the church spread during that first century, is reaching out to those fellow wanderers that are coming through their city. See how this was supposed to work? Both love for the community of faith, but also love for those who are outside to extend an invitation to share a relationship with the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 2, it also notes another dimension of hospitality that sort of just slipped into this verse, into the author's encouragement. Verse 2 says, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some who have done this have entertained stranger, or angels without realizing it. Now, the Greek word angelos, which we get our English word angels from, can simply refer to actual human messengers, as in Luke chapter 7, verse 24. However, the sense doesn't seem to fit the context here. They are not messengers of the gospel, but strangers that you entertain that are actually angels here on earth. Those outside the fellowship of a community of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now here the author is probably alluding to those Old Testament examples, such as Abraham and Sarah, where God literally sent angels, and unbeknownst to them, they were actually angels in human form. Because many times in the Old Testament, and even some in the New, when angels came to earth to minister, to deliver messages, they took on a corporeal or human form. So they were indistinguishable from other human beings. And he's saying, you may actually have an opportunity to minister to angels if you open your heart to those who are strangers to you. The third sphere of a loving relationship goes one more step. It's outside our comfortable bubble that we live in, and all of us tend to live in our own little bubble. Paula used to tell me early in our marriage, don't break me out of my bubble, I like it in here. And we all like that, because our bubble is comfortable. We like what is comfortable to us. But the author of Hebrews is encouraging us to even go to those who are in prison, those who are on the marginal side of society. And he was most likely referring to brothers and sisters in Christ who were victims of persecution and have been incarcerated for their faith. But this application also applies to anybody who is marginalized or cast out by society, those that maybe bring us a bit of discomfort when we're around them. We're told to open our home to strangers, and now we're told to open our hearts and our hands to those and actually go to those who are on the margins of society, those that we might not normally fellowship with 
on a daily basis. Maybe there's some of them that you work with or some that you see in town. We're actually to go to them, as we're told in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. We're to sympathize with their circumstances. Where we can, we need to alleviate their pain, whether it's physical or spiritual. We're to offer them love and acceptance. We're to treat them as a fellow imager of Christ. As the founder of Prison Fellowship, Charles Colson once said, taking the gospel to people wherever they are, whether it's on death row, the ghetto, or even next door to us, is frontline evangelism. It's frontline love. And that's where the ministry of Gospel Mission Food Pantry is so essential for our community. And that's why we, as a church, are passionate supporters of it. It allows us to reach those men and women, those families in our community that might need a little extra help physically or spiritually, that we might not personally have an opportunity to, to reach. We can reach through Jeff and Candy and their ministry. But as we have opportunity, let's do so ourselves. In these first seven verses, actually the whole chapter of Hebrews 13, it shifts from topic to topic. Now we're going to shift. So we have to shift our minds from taking care of the family of believers, taking care of those outside the family, taking care of those that are marginalized in society, to a different topic. At this time, the writer of Hebrews, when he wrote the book, Marriage wasn't really looked upon in real favorable means. There were celibates like the Jewish sect of the Essenes, and they despised marriage as an indulgence of unholy flesh. And they said, you should be celibate. On the other hand, there was the moral society around them, their original Hebrew audience, that treated marriage as an irrelevant commitment. Yeah, people got married, but they'd prefer to engage in fornication and all sorts of deviant practices that were destructive to marriage and the family. And even members, families you would see that appeared relatively stable in those days, they often treated marriage relationship as one of convection, convention rather than conviction. They were more pragmatists, saying, well, we have to be married to raise a family but rather than the passion that should be part of a, a marriage. But the author of Hebrew directly challenges this low view of marriage in whatever form it might take. And he places the adjective honoring marriage in front of the sentence for a position of emphasis. The contrast triad of celibacy and morality and indifference should not be part of a Christian life. Christian marriage should be honored, and the marriage bed, the most intimate personal aspect of a husband and wife relationship, should be kept pure. The marriage relationship should never be broken by adultery or defiled by fornication, both of which fall under God's judgment. And once again, it goes back to God's immutable law of planting and harvesting. If we plant those seeds in our lives which are against God's precepts, we will harvest the results, the fruit of going against God's precepts. But if we plant the seeds in our lives that are aligned with God's precepts, then our lives will produce fruits of righteousness, of right living. As Christians in this corrupt world, and I think it's been exasperated by social media and the news service constantly displaying it, I don't think it's nearly as deviant and as horrible as we're led to believe but there are ideas and practices that mark our modern society that open the door to promiscuity and perversion. However, we can attend 
to our own marriages, our own families, and make sure that they follow along biblical principles and guidelines. That's how we are to honor the marriage relationship. We need to press on toward maturity by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's verse 4, but let's shift our minds again to verses 5 and 6. The principle examined, verses 1 through 4, summed up in one core value for Christians, and that is commitment. Are we committed to those relationships around us, as we should be? The next step is an example of another priority of a Christian life, and that is contentment. How content are you with life? Being a place where we have and can say that all is well, I'm content. It may not be where I want to be, may not be where I hope to be, but I am content where I am. We're not constantly trying to scrape together more and more and more where we run ourselves ragged in order to obtain more things in our life, but we're satisfied with what God provides for us. Because if you're not satisfied with where you are today in your situation, you'll never be satisfied even if you have more. It seems like we're perpetually trying to scratch our way to the top of the ladder to outrank everyone else around us. And I know I have those tendencies in my own life, and I really need to guard against them. But instead, we must be faithful in the realm of our influence that we find, find ourselves where God has placed us it may not be permanent, but where we play are placed in this season of life, we are to be content and we're to take care of those around us. In the first matter of contentment, the material things, it's addressed in verses 5 and 6. The New Testament addresses the believer's relationship with money, many places in the New Testament, and any other material things that we tend to hoard to ourselves. I still find it amazing that we accumulate things that we really don't have that much use for. And then we have to rent storage buildings to store all this junk that we accumulate. And then we have to go earn more money to pay for the storage building that we're accumulating all this stuff in. It's amazing how discontented we become because we try to fill our lives with that which won't allow us contentment, won't bring contentment to our lives. Over and over, the same theme emerges in the discussion of contentment. And Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, the Apostle Paul wrote, Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it be with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. And then Paul instructs his understudy Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into this world. We're all, like you say in the country, butt naked. We had nothing when we came into this world. And we can't take anything with us when we leave it. When they put us in the grave, we don't take anything along with us. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. And the author of Hebrews also knows that this ever-present love for money, and it's not just here in the Western world in America where we seem to just strive to have more and more. That's our purpose in life almost. He shares the same dim view of this greed for wealth in the Apostle Paul, wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. 
the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, craving money, have wandered away from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. He says, if that's what your focus in is in life, that is not going to bring you contentment. The writer of Hebrews has been constantly warning his readers about the dangers of drifting, about falling away from the faith. And now the sharp warning is about money grubbing, going after that which will never bring us contentment. Not that we shouldn't pursue excellence in our lives, and if the Lord blesses us financially, that's good. But what are we using it for? To accumulate more and more and more? But he gets to the root of the, our lust for wealth. Our lust for wealth is stems in our doubt that God's faithfulness will provide for us as our protector. To inoculate his readers from the, this disease of doubt that drives us to be discontent, he quotes from Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, which was in our scripture reading today. It says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And he also quotes from Psalm 118, verse 6. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? With these passages, he undergirds the faithfulness of God. In the same way that Paul does in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, he says, And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which he has, we have been given to us in Christ Jesus. So many and material possessions are unworthy of our faith, hope, and love. That will never bring faith, hope, and love in our life. Obsessions with wealth is insatiable, and the need indicates that we lack a contentment with what God has provided for us. At the heart of this distrust in God, that we don't trust him to be our provider. In this topsy-turvy, up-and-down world, these bear markets and bull markets of the financial world are no match for the strength and stability of the Lord. The wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, wrote in Proverbs chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, the name of the Lord is our strong fortress. The godly run to him and are safe. But then he offsets that. He says, the rich think their wealth is a strong defense. They imagine it as a high wall of safety. Wealth will never bring us safety. We could lose it all in a moment. We saw during the pandemic just a glimpse of this when the supply lines were jammed up and we weren't receiving everything with full shelves in our stores. That could turn in a heartbeat. The financial market could turn sour. But if we're placing our trust in the Lord, we don't have to worry about that. Lord willing, it won't happen, but it could. Now let's shift our minds once more to verse 7. The author addresses the matter of contentment with God and appointed a position in the body of Christ to that of the church. It says, God has given all of us as members of Christ's body gifts of this Holy Spirit that we're to utilize within a church setting. Now some positions are more of a teaching role, as I do on Sundays. And it talks about that, who taught the word of God. But we have to understand that all ministry is, roles are essential. This position up here, although I'm held, maybe held to higher accountability when I present the word of God, is not more important or more, not more upstanding than any other position within the church. We could not get along without John's ministry up here and Barb singing with us. For Sue passing out bulletins. For any position within the church, any ministry that you have, for keeping our facilities updated, 
is just as important. And we have to grasp this and be content with what we have and what position God has given us within the ministry. That is assuming that everyone in a position such as this, as we're serving in the church, is living their lives in a manner that's worth emulating, that's worth imitating. When we as believers find contentment in the position that God has given us and that humility within this local assembly of believers, then we can begin to remember the lives of those who are worth imitating. There's several people in this church that I can look to and say their lives were lived for the Lord, and I want to imitate their lives. And that's what we need to look at. Especially considering that we're all just sinners saved by grace. That we're all imperfect human beings. That we'll let each other down occasionally. But the preeminence is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one who built the church. So what's the application today of this passage? Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It's on the other side of your bulletin insert. The application is today we're standing at the crossroad of commitment and contentment. And we're standing here saying, how can I be committed and content in my life? How is my life showing that commitment and contentment? And the chances are that something in today's message, Lord willing, has shown you a practical application that you need for your own heart. Maybe several of these points of principles caught your attention today. But as we leave, we need to ponder what the author's discussion about contentment and commitment really is. It's identifying specific and personal attitudes within our own hearts that needs to be changed or an action that needs to be started or stopped. So I'd encourage you to take the next few days to revisit these areas. And I've listed these in your bulletin insert. And ask the questions. In my relationship regarding these matters, what does it need to be? Where do I stand on these issues that we've reviewed today in my heart, my mind, and my actions? What must I do to get on track where the Lord wants me to be and could be? How are we doing on expressing brotherly love, Philadelphia? How are we doing on showing hospitality to outsiders, Philizenia? How are we doing ministering to those that are marginalized in their society, meeting their physical and spiritual needs? How am I doing being faithful in my marriage? Because love is always a choice. It's not a feeling, or not simply a feeling. It's a choice we make every day when we wake up to love one another as husband and wife or as fellow believers. Are you content with my pos- your possessions? What you have now, and if the Lord blesses and gives you more, will you be content with more? And finally, em- embracing our place within not only this local body of believers, but the worldwide church? Are you content with where the Lord has placed you today? It might not be for your next season of life. He may give you another different opportunity. But most important in that is, is your, is my, and your life worth imitating by those around us? Will they see us as someone worth imitating? The commitment means we're not compromising with our culture with the shifting sands of society that are at odds with God's word. And contentment means that we're trusting in God as our ultimate provider. Who knows best for us? He knows what we need today and knows what we'll need tomorrow. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. As the graphic at the bottom of the page says, God has said, I will never leave you. 
I will never abandon you. And right now, we need to look at these author's principles in these seven verses and take them from a theoretical to a practical. And when we do this, we can take our Christian life of faith, hope, and love to the next level. And that's what we need today. We need are standing at the crossroads of contentment and commitment. Where do you stand at these crossroads? Now, next week, we'll continue in this final chapter of Hebrews, and we'll explore some more practical precepts in a message titled, Changeless Truths in a Shifting World. So I'd encourage you to please read Hebrews 13, verses 8 through 17 in preparation for next week. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this message. We thank you for your word that we can go to it and learn how to live practical lives on a daily basis. Help us to love one another. Help us to love those who are outsiders. Help us to love those who are on the fringes of society that we may not usually have an opportunity to have fellowship with. Help us to be content with what you've given us today. And Lord, if you bless us with more tomorrow, that we'll be content with that. And help us to be content to serve you within the worldwide body of Christ, that we might serve faithfully in all that we say and all that we do, that our lives might be worth imitating. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.